The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, we're taking you on a trip to hell with Edward Brooke Hitching, the author of The Devil's Atlas, An Explorer's Guide to Heavens, Hells and Afterworlds. The book guides readers through the lands of the dead that have been imagined throughout history by cultures and religions around the world. Edward was joined in conversation by BBC History Revealed editor Charlotte Hodgman. The book's been um, quite a long time in the making. What was your kind of inspiration for writing it and um, how did you go about researching? I think it, it was this weird combination of things that happened at about the same time eight years ago. I, I'd written three books on the history of cartography, all from a different angle. Um, but I was in a rare bookshop in the basement in London and found this old, almost soggy, folded wad of rag paper, you know, so badly foxed and um, torn at the hinges. It, it didn't hold any promise. And then you, I, you kept unfolding out into the size of an A1 movie poster, like absolutely enormous. And it was a complete map of heaven, uh, purgatory and hell, all in one diagram from about 1750 um, and designed at the time to be posted up in the streets of Paris to urge you to uh, steer away from your sinful ways. So here are the rewards on offer and here's the, here's the threats that are hanging over you as well. Um, and I realized, well, A, that's incredibly rare to find any, any broadside that was meant to be, you know, publicly pasted up. They don't survive for obvious reasons. And second, I realized I, I of all the maps I've been digging through over the years, I'd, I'd rarely, if ever, come across maps of the afterlife. And so the obvious question to ask is, well, how many other attempts had been made? Um, and then extend that globally and look at other cultures, how they depicted um, these places that for... Well, we're essentially unseen worlds. Um, they're promise, um, promised worlds. There are there are reports and descriptions from from uh, you know sort of vision holders and seers and and perhaps a few eccentrics on the on the periphery of uh, of the sort of core um, beliefs. You know, sort of false messiahs and things like that. But when you gather them all together, you essentially form almost a practical guide for navigating around 
different after beliefs around the world. So it's a fun challenge to think, well, I've got enough time to gradually put all this material together. Um, so what would be a kind of bidecker for the for, for our next our next realm? I mean, how far back in history can we see texts and and images of of some sort of afterlife? How far back are we talking? <sighs> Well, I, I mean, it's what's really interesting is when you um, when you read all the the, the up to date scholarship on on prehistoric art on ca- on the famous cave paintings. So much of it is introduced with the disclaimer that ultimately we can't know for sure what they're showing us here, what they intended. Um, but you can make interpretations. I did. I wrote a book called The Sky Atlas, which was a history of the sky, and that's where this area blurs together with celestial um, interpretation, which is a blend of mythology and astronomy. Um, And with some cave paintings, you start to realise that actually the constellations are represented in in very simplistic patterns next to perhaps early um, uh, diagrams that are reminiscent of the zodiac figures, which honestly, the origins of the zodiac just disappears into prehistory. We trace it back to ancient Egypt and and back further, it just it, it just emerges out of this primeval fog. It's so exciting, um, and so really, when you're looking for it, I, especially when you're applying, um, you know, your own specific interpretations, you can go back as far as you want. And then, in terms of written literature, it occurs with the very first form of of writing of, of ancient Sumer with cuneiform, and we start to get the mythology of the ancient Sumerians, um, and and on we go. So it, the the line in the introduction is, you know, for for as long as we've lived on this world, we've been obsessed with the next. And that's exactly what you find. You, you span, uh, you know, vast time periods and, and sort of civilizations. Are there any kind of common themes that you found between um, these different visions of, of afterlives? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day um, who said, uh, what do you think, isn't it interesting how many differences there are between afterlife beliefs in cultures throughout history. And honestly, I hadn't even really thought about the differences because there are so many similarities. And it's such an exciting thing to trace. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm very uh, objective. As with any travel guide, I'm just sort of reporting quotes and the original documents, and this is what people have said, and, and, and this is uh, evidence of beliefs of that time. Um, but you do you can't help but notice the spread of ideas and the influence of ideas. And even if it's not specific, you're not tracing the specific routes that the information was carried on, you do notice the the impact. Um, and so, for example, this idea of uh, weighing our merit when it when it comes to our time, um, the, the the judgment of sin. I mean, obviously, as uh, if if you're raised Christian, you're very familiar with the idea, and we have this image of maybe St. Peter at the pearly gates with his book just ticking our names or crossing them out. Um, but you know, you can go back to ancient Egypt um, to the Duat, and this idea that. Um, your one test is your your soul, which is illustrated in a lot of ancient Egyptian art, is, is shown as a stalk with a human head. That's your ka, your soul. Uh, you're placed on a scale and your entire essence, your entire life is weighed against the weight of a feather. And if one ounce of sin pulls you in the other direction, then you, d- you don't go to any form of hell. You're annihilated from existence by the crocodile god. Um, and uh, otherwise you, you pass on your way to the paradise fields. Um, but that's an idea we can trace all the way uh, through to Zoroastrianism, where we have the, um, the Shimvat Bridge, 
which is a kind of sifting mechanism. Every soul post-death must walk this path along this bridge to the afterlife. Um, but as you walk along, it narrows, and you're guided by a psychopomp, um, which is the name for a sort of spiritual guide. And if you've been basically sinful your life, it's an old hag who um, leads you across a bridge that shrinks to the width of a razor, and you tumble down into the house of lies, the, the hell underneath. Um, if you've been good, it's a beautiful maiden, of course, <laughs> um, who leads you across a, a vastly wide bridge that's um, on a carpet of stoat skins um, to the um, House of Song, the paradise. Um, and so you can trace that there's a similar bridge in um, Islamic tradition of just sifting the good from the bad, the wheat from the chaff, um, and onwards. And you can almost link it to ideas of, um, you know, Jacob's ladder, ladders to heaven start to blend with the idea of bridges. Um, so it's, it's fascinating just to watch this transition. Um, one of the in sort of Western religions, you, you sort of see the heaven, hell, then you have sort of a, like a purgatory, like a, like a middle ground. Mm. Um, yeah. Could you kind of maybe talk a little bit about purgatory, but also whether that's, again, replicated in, in elsewhere in the world and elsewhere in history? Yeah, I think um, the the part of the reason of doing the book was I I'd obviously was familiar with terms like limbo and purgatory. But if you had challenged me to say, well, describe what these places are and describe when these ideas came about, I realised it was all part of that foggy, nebulous idea I think we all maybe have of uh, when you come to try and articulate or uh, specifically envision the afterlife. It's it's an idea, it's a metaphor, it's a, a vague promise in the backs of our minds. Um, really, a lot of our pictures are, come from things like Tom and Jerry cartoons, you know, the Simpsons or God with a great big white beard. Um, so it was interesting to try and think, to look at purgatory um, and... What's so interesting is it, it it's it's a classic example of an interpretation that comes out of necessity. So a book about heaven and hell like this is, of course, not actually about heaven and hell. It's about how how could it be? It's about how people, writers, artists, poets, philosophers, have um, interpreted interpreted and, and interrogated the idea from just a few, usually just a few scant references in the original core revered texts. And then as time has gone on, as society has changed, as science has blossomed, um, it's how we've synthesized these ideas with our new knowledge. And purgatory comes from the idea that um, originally, it's it's what's known as the problem of hell. How can a benevolent God condemn us to an eternity of suffering, um, even for just a minor sin, if we're just tainted with just one black mark? Technically, that's where we should be destined. So what about the people who, for the most part, are really good and perhaps made some mistake with a very light sin, maybe sort of accidentally sort of walking off with something that didn't belong to them? So there must be a place for these people um, you can't put them in hell because that would just be sadistic to condemn, condemn someone. So you can't take them to heaven because, of course, you're impure and it's just you're not worthy of God's love. So there must be a place where someone can be purged, can be dry cleaned of those, um, those black marks. Um, and for a time um exist there and then they've earned their passage on to heaven. And of course, to be cleaned of your black marks, you do need to undergo some sort of cleaning process and purging and of course out of that you get the idea of holy fire which is as old and even older than the idea of christian hell itself um and so that's where purgatory comes and obviously for the church what you find um there's uh, the um the historian jacques le goff who's the experts expert in terms of the tracing the uh, the origin of purgatory um 
points out that for a church, what, what a wonderful mechanism purgatory is, because of course, um, it very swiftly um, became an option that if you wanted to secure a better place for your loved ones in heaven, if you wanted to help with that dry cleaning process, um, to, for just a small amount paid to the church, you're buying a little bit of afterlife merit. If you can offer up more prayers, if you can attend church more often, you um, you offer them a better chance in life. Um, so in the book, I sort of trace a development of the idea, of the idea and and include some curiosities that are linked with it. So there's a museum in Italy um, called the Museo delle Anime del Purgatorio, which was a, a result of a very enterprising priest whose church suffered heavy fire damage. Um, and so he opened up this tiny museum at the back, and it's full of objects that are scorched with handprints and fingerprints, Bibles and crosses. And the uh, the the story goes that these are the um, touched by the souls of purgatory who have escaped to warn the living. Um, so repent now and save save yourself from even that intermediary fate. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He's saying, well, if you look at the differences in, in cultures and nations and how, how frequently at war, surely there must be a system of government in heaven. And therefore, the Italians, the French, the English and the Germans must be kept separated. Otherwise, it would just be, well, ironically, pandemonium up there. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit Apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Did you get a sense that people actually really believed that these were actual physical places that you went? Because some of the examples you give in the book, people seem to be taking it very seriously, predicting or, or trying to measure how big these spaces were, you know, how many people mm. could fit in. And Yes, yeah, that, I mean, that was... That was a big part of it. Um, I'm glad that leapt up because that, to me, was the most interesting. Um, it was that was the key point of search was to find uh, terrestrial metrics applied to the celestial um, intangible. Um, and obviously, coming from the point of view of cartography, there's obvious reasons why you have to do that. Um, I, I can't possibly. It's it's a tricky thing commenting on on belief. Um, I, th I think a lot of the time in popular history, we don't give enough credit to the people of the past being 
as shrewd and as wary and as cynical as we are now. We have a tendency to show a picture that someone has drawn and say, look, look, can you believe that that's what they thought? When in reality, it could be an entire visual code uh, system that has been completely lost. Um, and it's deeply satirical, and the humour of it is is much more sophisticated than our in- modern interpretation. But at the same time, uh, yeah, the point of the book was to search for people who, whether they believed it or not, perhaps were forced to rationalise the idea um, by um, applying um, metrics. So even in um, the book of Revelation, uh, th- there's essentially a very quite detailed st- street map of um, the the New Jerusalem, the heaven that God would, the paradise that God would um, um, establish on earth on Judgment Day, once the the unworthy souls were annihilated from existence, when everyone was resurrected, the unworthy would be annihilated, and and we and the worthy would all, the virtuous would all live um, forever in God's love on earth. Um, but because of that, um, it mentions, it has includes measurements of furlongs, how high the walls are, um, the, the gold streets, the pearly streets, um, all these, these, all this in the vision shown to John. Um, and so I'm sure a lot of the people who discuss, um, specifics and in, in, in various cultures, obviously some are quite eccentric. Some are um, sort of fire and brimstone preachers who are trying to hammer home the very real idea of earth. And that was the way to do it, is to say, well, the walls are 50 feet high. Suddenly you you can picture that. Um, and so perhaps it's more of a, a technique for, for manifesting it in the um, popular imagination. Um, but either way, that's what I've collected and that's what I offer to you to draw your own conclusions from. Um, um, and it's, it's a fun, it's a fun uh, subject to explore, whether you're looking at the idea of time in afterlife, whether it, which is always a different um, um, element in different beliefs or, you know, the populations. So a lot of time was spent um, trying to calculate the the number of demons that we would find in hell and um, their various hierarchies. And then we start to develop, you know, the sort of the governments, the bureaucracies that operate in hell. And, uh, um, and, and it, it all comes from this idea that everything we know about heaven, there must be an antipode. We know about the hierarchies of archangels, therefore there must be archdemons. Um, and so on. So it's it's a fun world to explore. One example that, that did make me chuckle a little bit was um, Thomas Burnett, who thought that um, nations would be separated in... Yes, well, it, which was very, very rational reasoning, mm. wasn't it? That, um, yes, in his time, which was, I think it, that's sort of uh, 17th century, um, and he's he's saying, well, if you look at the differences in, in cultures and in nations and how, how frequently at war, surely there must be a system of government in heaven. And therefore, the Italians, the French, the English and the Germans must be kept separated. Otherwise, it would just be, well, ironically, pandemonium up there. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you've, you've sort of mentioned a few common common images um, when we think about these sort of, sort of places that, that have that appear in different religions. So that you mentioned the bridge. Um, I suppose the, the mouth of hell is kind of another very common vision. Um, what kind of other imagery do you see sort of reflected in, in different um, different religions? And yeah, it's um, the bestial basically. If you, if anything that makes you deeply uncomfortable, any any sort of um, any human instinct we've we've inherited from evolution. So the fear of snakes and scorpions. Even if it's an animal that is 
you know, we know to have maybe a benevolent nature, anything that slithers or crawls or bears its teeth, anything that triggers some primal instinct in us to run away and hide, that's what you find incorporated into the nature of of anything evil, anything. Um, and so, you know, you look at the development of the image of the devil, for example, um, and in, in if again, it's maybe difficult to draw, but in some people's minds, it's cloven hooves, you know, it's it's sort of horns on the head, um, and if you look at the image of, say, Pan, um, a sort of pagan god, um, arguably older than the devil before he becomes a significant figure, you you see how there is this transition of um, incorporating uh, old gods into new systems of religion. It's it's one of the oldest tricks of the colonizer is to incorporate local beliefs um, as a sort of feature of your own dominating belief. It eases the transition. Um, and that's what happens with the devil. So you can trace these bestial elements all the way back to, uh, to say, the Egyptian gods, you know, which are sort of uh, famously have these sort of half half snake heads and, you know, great, great images like that. Um, but even the ancient Sumerians had um, sort of demons that would pop up from the underworld um, and that had sort of wings, were serpentine. Um, anything that was lethal to you would be incorporated. Um, and of course, there were, there, were, there were precautions you could take in Sumeria against these creatures. There are these things called devil trap bowls, which are written in um, uh, on the inside in a, in a spiral line of writing that sort of disappears down into the middle where there's a little image of a devil. And the idea was you place these bowls upside down uh, in the corners of your room, by the doorways, in cemeteries, and like um, spiritual mousetraps, they snare these um, little uh, gremlin devils. Um, mm. So it's always been with us, these these images. Um, yeah, and of course, um, we had the, the fire-breathing cockerel, um, which was a particularly... Uh, <laughs> strong image uh, in the book. When you start digging into the various hells of Buddhism, obviously uh, they get wider and broader. Each document gives us a different number of hells. They get very specific, usually based on who they're trying to convince. So, for example, there's there's a hell of um, incredibly um, heavy books that will crush you if you're a monk who doesn't um, keep up with your studies. Um, so there's an image of that in the book. Yeah, and there's the hell of the flaming rooster, um, which is the 11th of uh, 16 identified hells in this particular document known as the Hell Scroll, which also describes the hell of excrement, um, the hell of the iron mortar crushing you, the hell of the black sand cloud, hell of pus and blood and so on. Gosh, it sounds quite terrifying. Um, do you have a, a favourite, um, like a favourite hell or, or idea of heaven from, from your research? Yeah. Okay, so uh, th- I was just thinking about that, and one that, <laughs> one one thing that I really love is when you're studying, you know, you're reading through a lot of very serious um, literature and history, and suddenly something humorous pops out at you because it's such an effective time traveling connection to a person in the past. I'm less interested in the names of, you know, their six wives or the dates of their battles. I want to know what made them smile, what made them chuckle, because if it makes you chuckle, uh, suddenly all the time between you is lost and you you think, well, maybe they'd be interesting to go to the pub with. Um, and so one, <laughs> one idea of hell, and perhaps it wasn't meant as humorous, but I find it funny, is of the, uh, of the mayor of Shabalba, this um, underworld city, um, and in this document known as the Popol Vuh, or the Book of the People, it relates 
the journey you have to take through um, the various levels of the underworld to, to reach Shabalba. You have to cross um, rivers of pus, rivers of blood, rivers of scorpions. You then make it to a crossroads where the four roads speak to you, um, each promising to be leading the way to Shabalba, but three of them are lying and you have to work out which one is telling the truth. When you finally reach this magnificent dark city, um, your first task is to pay homage to the lords of death in their great demonic parliament. So you enter this vast auditorium and you suddenly realize that there aren't just 10 or 12 gods there. The the seating is filled. There are thousands of straw dummies who have been placed to look exactly like the people you're supposed to find, these death gods. And so you have to spend, uh, you know, uh, almost an infinite amount of time searching to find the real death gods to pay homage to, which is, of course, very exhausting. So you're offered a bench to rest on in your search. And as you sit down, you too late realize it's a scalding hot plate that you burn your backside (laughs) on. So you leap to your feet and you have to keep going. And that's only part of the ordeal. And then once you've paid homage, you then move on to these um, various houses of ordeals, which are uh, self-explanatory from the names, the houses of jaguars, the house of uh, flying knives, and so on. (laughs) So obviously I wouldn't like to be stuck there for an eternity, but I think to pack a sandwich and have a look around for a day, I think it would be wonderful. Actually, it's funny you should say that, because the idea of kind of guides... Uh, to the underworld and things like that is quite is also quite common, isn't it? You, probably the most famous Western example would be Dante's um, Virgil, obviously. Are there other examples of guides to the underworld that you found? Yeah, I think there's um, uh, there's a great sort of tradition in medieval and later literary of of, of vision tours, um, heavens and hells. Um, uh, it's tricky because it it it. You, it depends what you think you should incorporate almost as, as canon in this literature because you start looking through the Apocrypha and once you start looking through Apocrypha, it's such a wonderfully bizarre, almost psychedelic um, area that you you might not um, escape out of it. But there are examples of, you know, say, the, the, the Apocalypse of Peter, which is written in the mid-second century, uh, which is just an absolute horror film of sort of gruesome um, uh, horrors that that are to be experienced. Um, but I, what what I think is most interesting is is looking at um, the the sort of artistic representations that have been left, particularly in this country, actually in the UK, in in churches, in terms of um, murals that are presented as these visions and as warnings. Um, and so f- for this book, I was traveling around to a lot of these churches looking for um, these sort of artistic hell guides. And um, one of the, m- the most amazing, um, which I'd, I only knew about because my my mum had mentioned she grew up um, in the same village in Chaldon in Essex. Um, there is this enormous, I think it's about 17 foot wide mural that I put as a double page in the book. It's only in white and red ochre um and it shows heaven and hell uh as envisioned by this they think a sort of traveling monk artist um i think it dates back to the 12th century um and that's that's obviously highly influenced by these sort of vision tours um but when you see um an artistic style that perhaps is is pre-dante before the influence of Dante, because Dante is obviously the grand architect in the popular imagination of 
heaven and hell. Um, when you go just before Dante, in ter- well, um, before his influence could have reached this particular artist, um, you're getting a, a deeper glimpse into the more um, common imagination of people of, of that time. Um, and that's obviously where these visions of heaven and hell come from too. Um, so yeah, that was the idea is to sort of present that journey. I mean, I've, I've kind of asked you what your your favourite um, kind of place was. Um, what 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 have you found that was kind of the worst? Do you think would be the worst um, place <laughs> that you you might be <laughs> condemned to? It's yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question because you know initially you might think well the most gruesome, brutal hell, um, but I think one one of my you're going to think I'm weird for offering this as the example, but one of my favourite stories that I came across completely by accident was um, looking for a form of paradise that you could still visit, Um, an an effort to establish a utopia, essentially. Um, And that led to reading about the um, town of Zion in North America. It's about 200 miles of Chicago, north of Chicago. And it was established as one of um, just a number of towns that were completely planned out before it was built. It was uh, owned and constructed and operated by one man, a, 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 a Scottish Australian um, faith healer, uh, false messiah and suspected arsonist named um, John Alexander Dowie, who made, uh, he, he, he established quite a great following in Australia at the, the, the end of the 19th century, he made so much money that he could secretly buy something like 4,000 acres of territory uh, north of Chicago and built this town. And it's the roadmap. You can actually see, I include a Google Maps shot of it today. It's constructed in the shape of the Union Jack as a nod to his origins. But every street is is named, is, is a name taken from the Bible, um, bordered by Bethlehem Avenue. Um, and it was ruled with an absolute... Um, ironclad rule book of, of Dowie's, who is clearly an eccentric. Um, and it's it must have been such a strange and pretty awful place to live because everything was forbidden. Every form of fun was um, banned in the town rules. So there was no smoking, no drinking, no music, no doctors, no lawyers. Maybe that's not so bad. And for some, some reason, he banned tan-coloured shoes. There was, um, it's one of the first places in the world, I, I think the first, to have um, anti-smoking billboards. This is at the very beginning of the 20th century. Uh, you were branded a stink pot. That was your <laughs> official town label, should you be caught with a cigarette. Um, and the police... Uh, had two holsters, one for a billy club and one for their Bible. Um, there was a dove painted on their helmets. Um, and the great thing is, um, Dowie was clearly a con man. He drove around in an emperor's carriage in fine robes. No one wonders where he got the money from. It turned out he'd been embezzling millions of dollars from the town bank, which he owned. Uh, he was he was uh, deposed by his assistant, Wilbur Volivar, who, happily for us, was even more eccentric, um, established the official town doctrine as believing in a flat earth. So everyone had to have that. That was the new town logo. Um, and when he was finally overthrown, it was found he'd embezzled even more um, <laughs> millions of dollars. Just, and he he fell ill and died shortly after, despite claiming that he'd live forever due to um, a diet of milk and cashew nuts. Um, and so all of this existed in this tiny little pocket of history. It's not really a story you'd find in a lot of other books. There's not many excuses to put it in. But um, I love the idea that that was the sort of the last great 
utopia. And it just highlights the lesson that um, it's a fool's errand searching for uh, a, a utopia, especially on Earth. Um, is perfection cannot be guaranteed even by the people who construct it for themselves. That was Edward Brooke Hitching, The Devil's Atlas, an explorer's guide to heavens, hells and afterworlds, is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.